This is the hour of doom and bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a landfill full of loyalty in a ludicrous world. And the number one show about medical preparedness, if I may say so myself, mostly because it's the only show about medical preparedness. It's like the fast and the furious. If by fast, you mean slow, and by furious, you mean senile. <laughs> You're hilarious. <laughs> and who am I? I am Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of the award-winning survival website, doomandbloom.net. And here's my wonderful co-host... Amy Alton, I'm a nurse practitioner, an advanced registered nurse practitioner, actually, and a certified nurse midwife, and I'm known as Nurse Amy. That's right, and purveyor of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. She's so sharp, she knit me a sweater with her fingers. Oh, no. Pretty amazing. (laughs) On this show, you're going to get the conventional medical wisdom, the unconventional medical wisdom, and if you're still awake, incoherent rants by someone who's always talking about those young whippersnappers. Hey, whatever it takes to get your family medically prepared for tough times, you are going to hear it right here. But first, got to listen to this. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Or don't, survival snob. A little zombie apocalypse doesn't bother the likes of you. But answer me this, who's going to keep your family safe and sound when the boogeyman comes a-knocking? What happens if you-know-what really hits a fan when the hospitals are out of commission and someone's sick or injured? Who the boss? Well, don't look at me. I'm just here for the beer. I'm looking at you, pal. You can bet that when it's least expected, you're elected. So get off your duff and learn some stuff, and why not get some medical supplies while you're at it? Amy can tell you where you can find some. Absolutely. Store.doomandbloom.net. That's right. Hey, I want to mention that the fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, greatly expanded and revised, ranks 4.8 out of 5 on Amazon over more than 2,000 reviews and is still high on bestseller lists throughout the country. If you haven't checked out our greatly expanded new book, you can find the black and white version on Amazon and the color version at store.doomandbloom.net. We even have a color spiral bound version on our website. Water, the source of all life. There's no animal that isn't composed partly of it. Even the microscopic water bear you've seen on the Science Channel can drop its moisture content to less than 1% of its normal, but still harbors about 3% total water content at its driest. Humans, however, are about 60% water, don't have the ability to survive for more than about three days without a new source of fresh water. Dropping water content just 2 to 3% in a human, well, that leads to ill effects. In normal times, those who receive a water bill from their town or city are purchasing it from a system where the water is tested regularly. They've got to prove to the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, that the water supply meets national primary drinking standards. An annual water quality report is compiled and is available through your water company. You can call for it with information about possible contaminants. Now, having said that, germs and chemicals can still get in the water, either at its source, through the distribution system, or even after leaving the water treatment facility. So water is a great giver of life, but taken from the wrong source, it can result in miserable illness or even death. The challenge is to find safe, drinkable water, what we call potable water, or at least to have the materials and knowledge to make it safe to drink. Harmful germs or toxic chemicals can get into the water from many sources, including fertilizers, pesticides, other chemicals used on land near the water, concentrated feed operations from livestock farms, manufacturing operations, factories, things like that, 
overflowing sewers and cracks and water piping systems, flood waters, soil containing substances that could even be arsenic, could even be uranium, believe it or not. And in smaller waters like creeks, even the wildlife could cause contamination. Now, it's not always obvious that water, even from the tap, is safe to drink. Now, some signs should warn you of questionable water if it's cloudy. Any cloudiness can signal the presence of disease-causing microbes. If it's slimy, now hard water can cause your hands to feel slimy when touching it, but that doesn't have to mean danger. But still, slimy water could mean the presence of things like lead, aluminum, or other toxic metals. If the water is discolored, that's an issue too. Brown or other colored water may signify the presence of microbes or toxins like copper, iron, or lead. But it could also indicate tannins. Tannins are natural organic matter that result from water passing through decaying vegetation. If you've hiked through the wilderness, you probably have come across a slow-moving creek where you saw sort of yellowish water or brownish water. In small concentrations, this is not dangerous, but it can cause a number of problems if it's present in excess. Now, if water is smelly, that's a big issue. Water that smells bad could harbor disease-causing organisms or toxins like barium or cadmium. Odors like rotten eggs, well, that indicates the presence of sulfur, right? Hydrogen sulfide. And when exposed to certain bacteria, that converts to sulfate, which can cause dehydration or diarrhea. So a high level of suspicion is wise with just about any new water source. Even the clearest mountain stream can harbor things like Giardia, a parasite that causes explosive diarrhea and dehydration. So better safe than sorry. If you lose access to municipal drinking water, you can still count certain sources in the home as generally safe. Melted ice cubes made from water that isn't contaminated, liquid from canned vegetables and fruit, water from your home's toilet tank, not from the bowl, from the toilet tank, if it's clear and not discolored by chemical treatment, water from your home's water heater, the tank that connects to the water that comes out of your faucets and shower heads, and bottled water from coolers. Water from swimming pools and spas can be used for hygiene purposes, but not for drinking. Also, never use water from radiator tanks or boilers that are part of your home heating system. They're different from your water heater for faucets and showers. They are not safe to drink. So if you suspect that the water quality is questionable, there are simple ways to help make it safe to drink. Boiling is perhaps the most well-known and eliminates bacteria, viruses, and parasites. Simply take a container, fill it with water, get it to a roiling boil for about one full minute. If you are at an altitude over 6,500 feet, you need to boil it for three full minutes. Now, why? Because as altitude increases, the atmospheric pressure decreases, and so does the boiling point of water. To compensate for the lower boiling point, the boiling time must be increased. Boiling takes fuel, however, so you might consider instead chemical disinfection to get rid of bacteria and viruses. This is most easily accomplished with sodium hypochlorite, that's unscented household bleach. You use 8 drops of bleach per gallon, but maybe 16 drops if the water is cloudy. Other chemicals such as iodine or chlorine dioxide, that will work as well after a period of waiting. You have to wait about 30 minutes for all of these chemical methods to work their magic. It's important to be aware that old bleach, liquid bleach that's older than about 6 months, probably will begin to lose its potency. Now, for storage purposes, calcium hypochlorite may be an improvement on household bleach. A 1-pound package of solid Calcium hypochlorite in granular form can treat up to 10,000 gallons of drinking water. It destroys a variety of disease-causing organisms, including bacteria, yeast, fungus, spores, and viruses. Calcium hypochlorite is widely available for use as a swimming pool additive. Using granular calcium hypochlorite to disinfect water is a two-step process. One, to make a stock of chlorine solution, don't drink this, 
Dissolve one heaping teaspoon, about one quarter of an ounce of 78% granular calcium hypochlorite for each two gallons, that's eight liters of water. Then add just one part of the chlorine solution to 100 parts of water to be treated. And then let the mixture sit for at least a half hour before drinking. In some circumstances, you may have neither fuel for boiling nor chemical agents for disinfection. In this case, you can use the ultraviolet light from the sun. This is known as the solar water disinfection method, and that's also known as SODIS, S-O-D-I-S. Colorless, labelless, two-liter plastic or glass bottles will serve the purpose. What you want to do is fill the bottle about 90% with the questionable but clear water, then expose it to full sunlight for six full hours. Cloudy weather makes it obviously take much longer, but, well, if it's raining, you want to collect the rainwater instead. For the best effect, you want to consider placing the bottle on a reflective metal surface such as aluminum foil to increase the bottle's light exposure. For a simpler way to UV sterilize water, there are indeed commercial UV sterilizers available such as the SteriPen. That's S-T-E-R-I hyphen P-E-N. Should be noted that water containing toxic chemicals or radioactivity is not made safe with any of these disinfection methods that I'm mentioning. Now you may have methods to disinfect water, but if it's cloudy or has particulate matter in it, you've got to filter it first. Commercial filters such as the LifeStraw, the Sawyer Mini, the Berkey, these are all useful and effective, but if you don't have them, some improvisation is going to be required. Here's what you're going to need. A plastic bottle with a cap, a knife, a hammer and a nail, coffee filter or a thin cloth, a large cup or mug, either one works, uh, activated charcoal, sand, gravel, and a container to catch the water. Uh, anything will do, a jar, a cup, mug, whatever. First, use the knife to cut the bottom off the plastic bottle at about one-third of the way from the bottom. Take the hammer and nail and punch a hole or two in the cap. If you don't have a hammer or nail, use the knife to cut an X shape into the bottle cap. Cover the mouth of the bottle with the coffee filter and then tighten the cap over it. Put the bottle upside down into the container which will contain the water. Or use the cutout bottom of the bottle itself as your container. Add layers of filtering material. Start by filling the bottom of the bottle with charcoal. If the charcoal is in large pieces, you got to break it down until it's about pea-sized in size. You want to fill the middle with undyed sand. Fill the rest with gravel. The layers should be about the same thickness, however, but leave an inch or so of space at the top to avoid spillage. Now, the gravel layer is going to catch the larger pieces of debris. The sand layer catches smaller particles, such as dirt, and the charcoal layer will help get rid of bacteria. Be aware that in the beginning, the charcoal may have some soot. Some people do rinse it if you happen to have water, even even if that water is questionable. Now, hold your improvised filter over the container and pour water in slowly. Be patient because now filtered water may take some time to flow into the container through all the layers. Now, if they're still not clear, you want to put the water through a second time. If it takes too long, well, you might have to use thinner layers. Additional graduated layers can be added as desired. It just depends on the person. Another method suggests making a filter out of the sapwood of trees like pine. Sapwood contains something called xylem, X-Y-L-E-M, which filters out dirt and even bacteria, but not viruses. For this, you'll need a plastic bottle as before, and then you want to cut a four inch long piece from a pine tree branch of the thickness that when the bark is peeled off, fits tightly into the bottle neck. Slide the first inch or so of the stick into the neck of the bottle. Cut the bottom of the bottle off and turn the bottle upside down. Fill the bottle with water and let the water drain through the stick. Now with this method, it's very important that the xylem remains constantly moist or you lose the filtering effect. Now, once you have a safe water source, you want to store a supply of it. Use food-grade water storage containers. These are not going to leach toxic substances into the water they're holding and can be found at camping supply stores. 
The container you use should be made of unbreakable materials, in other words, not glass. It should have a narrow opening that makes pouring easy and have a top that can be closed tightly. Avoid containers that have previously held toxic chemicals such as bleach. You want to write the date on a label and keep it stored in a dark place with a temperature preferably between 50 and 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Replace your water supply every six months or so. Stored water, by the way, will often taste flat. This occurs because over time the water loses oxygen, much like a soda loses carbonation. To restore the original taste, you want to shake your water in a container for a minute or two before drinking. Now about salt water. Now you've heard that it's dangerous to drink salt water and that among other reasons is because the human kidney can't eliminate large amounts of salt causing excessive strain and leading to dehydration. Too much salt causes elevated blood pressures that may lead to organ failure as well and drinking salt water also causes muscle cramps in just about everyone who drinks a lot of it. If your only option is salt water there are ways to desalinate it. Off the grid the best method might be distillation by evaporation. When water is evaporated salt and other particles are separated from it. The distilled water is caught in a container and should be safe to drink. Desalination is most quickly achieved by boiling. However, you can get condensation from seawater with just a few supplies. You'll need a pot, a smaller pot, some plastic wrap or sheeting, and maybe one or two weights, or even rocks would do. Partly fill the larger pot with seawater and put the smaller pot in the larger pot. Cover the whole thing with plastic wrap and put a weight on the plastic over the center of the smaller pot, but not touching it. Condensation of fresh water will occur on the inside of the plastic sheet, leaving the salt behind. The weight on the plastic will cause fresh water to drip into the smaller pot and you can drink from that. They call this method a solar still or a moisture trap. So that's some information about water disinfection. And that I think is very important because I believe that a lot of deaths will occur, unnecessary deaths will occur after the you know what hits the fan if people do not disinfect questionable water sources. You just have to look at the death rate from the Civil War in terms of soldiers dying from dehydration due to dysentery and other kinds of intestinal ailments caused by bad water and poorly prepared food. Today's episode of the Survival Medicine Podcast is brought to you by Nukem, the 21st century deodorant. Summer's just around the corner and you're on your way to being a sweaty slob like you are every year. But don't worry, here's something that'll give you peace of mind. It's Nukem. The radioactive aluminum isotopes in Nukem don't mask bacteria causing body odor. It disintegrates them and leaves your armpits glowing. Just one wipe under each pit and you're good to go for days or until your arms fall off. Heck, don't even shower. This stuff destroys your sense of smell. Nukem for men who don't want to stink but still like to emit confidence. And gamma radiation. Get it today. Well, you probably want to hear about a viral outbreak as much as you like a hole in the head. But you're going to hear about it in the media, and as a medical preparedness advocate, I've got to tell you when it occurs, like I do with everything. On January 7, 2020, I reported on 60 cases of pneumonia in a place called Wuhan, China. At the time, nobody had yet died from the unknown virus, and some wondered why I even bothered talking about it. 700 million cases later and 7 million deaths later, well. So it's probably good to just know about these things as early as possible, just in case, before the media turns into something bigger than what it is. So recently, the African countries of Equatorial Guinea and Tanzania have reported cases of a hemorrhagic fever known as Marburg virus. So far, there have been 14 cases confirmed in Guinea with 10 deaths and one recovery, and 20 probable cases, all of whom died. On Tanzania, I think people have told me that it's actually pronounced Tanzania, on the opposite coast, eight cases with five deaths have been documented. Now, that particular outbreak seems to have been controlled. Equatorial Guinea... We're not getting many reports out of that area, so we're not really sure. 
Strangely, the CDCO seems to be a little behind when it comes to issuing warnings about these things, and this delay is sometimes a reason why containment of highly contagious viruses is so difficult, but they're telling you not to travel to Equatorial Guinea. The last hemorrhagic fever to reach major epidemic proportion was, well, Ebola in 2014. That 28,000 total cases, 11,000 deaths. And Marburg is very similar to Ebola in many ways. Both are viruses in the Filoviridae family. Like Ebola, Marburg causes a disease that severely impacts various organs of humans and non-human primates in a short period of time. Both are what we call zoonotic infections, which means they can be passed from animals to people. The original source of the virus is actually similar for both Ebola and Marburg, and that is fruit bats. We call that the reservoir. Neither virus seems to sicken the bats, but cause significant numbers of deaths among their human and primate victims. Like Ebola, it's thought that humans may have first contracted the virus by eating undercooked bushmeat. And by that I mean bat meat. The Marburg virus was first identified in 1967 in, of all places, a German and Yugoslavian lab setting. Now, there were several simultaneous cases that were linked to infected laboratory monkeys, but unlike the situation with COVID in the Wuhan Virology Lab, the fact that Marburg was first identified in a lab doesn't mean it was manufactured or otherwise developed there. It turns out the laboratory monkeys, imported from Guinea, arrived already infected with the previously unknown disease, which spread to laboratory workers, and in the original outbreak, 31 people got infected and 7 people died before the virus was contained. The very contagious Marburg virus can be transmitted whenever there is contact with bodily fluids or bedding or clothing or other personal items of an infected person. The symptoms start often suddenly between 2 and 21 days after exposure. They average about 5 to 10 days, actually. Uh, Infected individuals experience a high fever, headaches, muscle aches, abdominal pain, and watery diarrhea at first, followed several days later by organ failure and bleeding in the urine, bowel movements, from the gums, nose, eyes, and ears, and even under the skin. Blood loss is often severe enough to cause shock, leading to death. So in fatal cases, this occurs around, well, day 8 or 9 of the beginning of symptoms. Those most at risk for getting infection with Marburg are people who have direct contact with infected family members and, of course, healthcare workers. One contributing factor to Marburg's spread is the custom in parts of Africa of having the family ritually wash the body of the deceased before burial. In previous outbreaks, case fatality rates have ranged from 24 to 88%, depending on the strain of the virus involved and the availability of medical treatments, such as intravenous fluids and blood products. Keeping the victims hydrated seems to decrease the death rate, as it did with Ebola. It actually dropped Ebola's death rate from about 50% to about 40%. Oxygen and blood transfusions, well, they also help. Patients with suspected Marburg virus they should be placed in isolation. Those caring for them should wear serious personal protection gear like gowns, aprons, gloves, face masks, and face shields. I'll tell you, this mask thing may not have panned out much with the uh, COVID, but it definitely is something that you're definitely going to want to have with Marburg virus. No vaccine has yet been developed against the Marburg virus, although some are theoretically in development. It's been suggested that due to its close relation to Ebola, that existing Ebola vaccines may be effective. So we'll see. The World Health Organization considers the risk of an epidemic to be very high for Guinea, but previous outbreaks of Marburg, including one in the nation of Ghana last year, have all petered out on their own. I haven't seen many updates, as I mentioned, on the number of cases, so I can't say if this one will. But the countries involved and their neighbors 
are initiating containment protocols with contact tracing and other methods of identifying and isolating those people that are at risk, I guess lessons learned from Ebola. So the chance for worldwide spread is considered to be very low. So we should all be aware of Marburg, even if it's still beyond the horizon. Let's just hope it stays there. Hey, this is when we take questions we're asked from listeners on our various social media outlets and answer them on the air. This one's a question for us from our friend Jack Spierko's Survival Podcast, where we serve as medical experts. Here goes. Hi, Joel Nendi here, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net and co-author of the fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. I was saddened recently to hear of the passing of Dave Wolf Stutz, a great preparedness and firearms instructor who was a fellow member of PrepperNet. Dave passed away from a cerebrovascular accident, which you'll know better as a stroke. I haven't talked about this issue in a long while, so I think it's important to let everyone know about them. A stroke is a medical event in which a blood vessel that supplies the brain with oxygen either becomes blocked with a clot or leaks blood. The effect in either circumstance is that tissue served by that blood vessel becomes starved of oxygen. Within a few short minutes, the region affected begins to die and functions controlled by that part of the brain are lost or impaired. Uncontrolled high blood pressure is considered to be a major risk factor for a stroke, but there are other predisposing factors, diabetes, tobacco, obesity, some heart irregularities. In a sizable number of cases, no obvious cause is actually ever identified. According to the CDC, stroke is the fifth leading cause of death in the United States, with about 800,000 cases a year. Of those who survive a stroke, many are left with a significant permanent disability. Indeed, a percentage won't make it to the first anniversary of the event. The failure to provide oxygen-carrying blood to the brain could occur in one of two ways. One, a blood clot obstructs a vessel needed to maintain circulation to the brain. This is called an ischemic stroke and is the most common type. The blood clot may have formed locally, that's called a thrombosis, or traveled from elsewhere in the body, known as an embolism. In survival, another way an ischemic stroke occurs may be seen in areas where hostile encounters are common. If severe trauma to, say, the chest causes severe bleeding, it may deplete the brain of oxygen to the point that an ischemic stroke occurs. The second way is from a leak from an artery, a vein, or an abnormal structure that causes blood to accumulate in the brain tissue or the space between the brain and its protective membranes. This is known as a hemorrhagic stroke and can occur due to trauma, blood thinning medications, or other causes. A hemorrhage places pressure on sensitive brain cells, causing significant damage as blood accumulates. This kind of stroke can be caused by uncontrolled high blood pressure or, less commonly, by a malformation of a blood vessel known as an aneurysm. An aneurysm is a weakness in a vessel wall that looks like a tiny balloon. If it bursts, a catastrophic bleed into the brain could certainly occur. Sometimes hemorrhage can occur in the area of a blood clot-induced ischemic stroke, blurring the line between the two types. The CDC has compiled a list of symptoms that point the medic to the diagnosis of stroke. By learning these often unmistakable signs, quick action can lead to life saved and function restored. Stroke victims will often exhibit the rapid onset of certain symptoms. The classic ones follow the mnemonic, be fast. B, balance. Is the person suddenly having trouble walking or with balance and coordination? E, eyes. Is the person experiencing suddenly blurred or double vision or a sudden loss of vision in one or both eyes without pain? F, face. Does one side of the face droop or is it numb? Ask the person to smile if you're not sure. A, arm. Is one arm weak or numb? 
asks a person to raise both arms. Does one arm drift downward? S. Speech. Is speech slurred? Are they unable to speak or are they hard to understand? Like me sometimes. Ask the person to repeat a simple sentence like, the sky is blue. Is the sentence repeated correctly? Also, can they understand your speech? And T for time. It's important to note when symptoms started and when the victim was last thought to be well. The longer the time frame between wellness and weakness, the more likely it will be long term. The presentation of a stroke victim is oftentimes quite striking and an observant medic will make the diagnosis quickly. Rapid action may help preserve function and even life. The large majority of strokes are ischemic blood clot related in nature. In normal times, a patient with this type of stroke might be treated with surgery or a powerful IV therapy that helps break up clots. In survival scenarios, blood thinners like aspirin may be of use, but only for ischemic strokes. If no aspirin is available, salicin from the underbark of willow trees has a similar effect. It should be noted that a hemorrhagic stroke, which is about 20% of all strokes, may actually worsen with the use of blood thinners like aspirin. This presents a dilemma for the medic as the symptoms are about the same for both ischemic and hemorrhagic types. Some believe that hemorrhagic strokes present with a more sudden onset of headache more often than do ischemic blood clot related strokes. As many strokes are caused by elevated blood pressures, antihypertensive meds may help to reduce damage caused. Make sure your people are taking their meds. Blood pressure is usually at its lowest if you place the patient on their left side. Recovery from a stroke is not impossible. The National Stroke Association reports 10% will experience almost complete recovery with another 25% having just minor impairments. Reports suggest that the most recovery occurs soon after a stroke, but improvement may still occur over a longer period of time, especially with rehabilitation. Let's talk about that. Various types of rehabilitation may be used for stroke victims even off the grid. Motor skill exercises. Weak muscles can be retrained to improve strength and coordination. Mild exercise, repetitive movements, these are the cornerstones of this therapy. Mobility training. Patients are trained in the use of canes, walkers, wheelchairs if available. Range of motion therapy. Stretching, reaching, rotation of joints. This helps increase the range of tense spastic muscles. Speech therapy. With one side non-functional, more effort is required to get enough air to speak. Practice breathing exercises so as to allow the most communication possible. To help with pronunciation, say a set of sounds and later repeat full sentences. Also, perform tongue strengthening exercises like sticking it in and out from side to side, touching the roof of the mouth. These may help form words better for clearer speech. Cognitive therapy. Puzzles, games, things that require the use of memory are helpful to improve brain function. Write words on cards and ask the patient to, let's say, alphabetize them. Have the patient count different amounts of money and then add and subtract to increase the challenge. Checkers, block stacking, word games, these all improve problem solving and fine motor skills. The more interaction you have with the post-stroke victim, the better their morale. This will give them the best chance for a decent quality of life even in survival settings. Better still, regularly monitor blood pressures, blood sugars, other symptoms. This is Joe Altnendi, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, for quality medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear, don't forget to check out our entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did.
Well, that's all the time we have. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast. For Amy Alton, I'm Joe Alton, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.